welcome to an episode of our associated podcast mini-series where Francesca and I are going through the nitty-gritty of how to really game VC interview processes. Today we're going to be discussing the question and answer phase of these processes and one thing that we want to dive into is how much of a chance it is to shine and really display your knowledge of the world by by asking very carefully crafted questions. So let's get into it. Hey Tinder, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. It's uh it's a bit of a cold Saturday morning in Stockholm, so I'm happy to be indoors recording this safe and sound. <laughs> nice. Is it snowing? Um it stopped snowing, so it's the first time it's got over over zero degrees in about four weeks. And the lake has just unfrozen. But yeah, it's pretty cool. Can you ice skate on the lake? Uh, I could have maybe a couple of weeks ago, but now it's it's kind of a mix of uh, wetness and death. <laughs> okay, so not recommended. <laughs> no, no. I think you have to be like a really special Swede to ice skate on that lake. Um, <laughs> and I am none of the above. No, right. And I, I really like your description there of what we're going to be talking about. And it's such a point of, you know, at the end of the interview, like personally, mentally, I'm drained, right? And it's almost so easy to say, no, I don't have any questions. I just want to leave. <laughs> but as you said, this final hurdle that you have to go through is actually your chance to shine and maybe claw back some brownie points. So they're important, right? Yeah, they are really important. Um, and I think, you know, I've definitely had some interview processes where I've been actively digging myself out of a grave I've made for myself using this Q&A phase. Um, but I think my favorite thing about this part of the interview pro- process is it's the only part that you can really completely control. Everything else, you're reliant on other people, but this is the best, the best point. Yeah, so should I get cracking with a question that I asked that I felt, you know, landed pretty well during my interview process? Yeah, go go for it. So I like to ask, what does the fun look like in five years' time? What, what do you think about that question? Yeah, so I mean, I think there's a lot of things to like about that question. Um, one, I think it shows that you yourself are rather ambitious and that you have some direction there. Um, And then the second thing I think it displays is that at least to the interviewer, you're thinking of your future at the fund in the long term. So it proves that you're you're not using it as a stepping stone and also that you're maybe more long-term minded. So I, I quite like that question. And then just from a you know future job hygiene perspective, it does tell you a lot about what life could look like and the opportunity set that the, the role might have for you. Right. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, but what I actually found very interesting was often a question that you get asked is, what do you want to have achieved in five years time? Or what, what's Francesca doing in five years time, which I personally find very irritating because I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but I, I would hope, right, that the partners have an idea of what, what the fun looks like in five years time. But what I've been very surprised about was how poor a lot of the time that those partners answered that question. Um, yeah. I think that, that's super telling, right, that they haven't all sat down and discussed collectively as a team what that answer should be. And it's even more interesting, I found, when 
you ask it to partners separately and how different quite often the case the answer is. What tends to be quite common is we raise a new fund, but that's really like not that helpful. So I really think it's very informative of how ambitious the fund is, how they see you within the fund and how they can make it enticing for you. Because obviously if they um, start saying, you know, we want a new division, we might go to a different country. These are all sort of things, as you said, um, help you get a better understanding of like where you might fit within that team. Right? No, exactly. And I think you can begin to gauge whether there are career progression opportunities there, opportunities to to travel and move around or just look at completely new verticals. So I think it, it is a it is a great question. And I too, as as someone with a with limited a very kind of lackluster five-year plan um, agreed that the, that the inverse question is uh, is is really annoying to me also. So it's great to turn the tables. Yeah, I think I actually, I mean, a bit of a side note, got quite a good answer to that, that I yeah. read somewhere. <laughs> like, where do you want to be in five years' time? So uh, a good response that I found is that, like, that is an excellent question, but right now, I'm thinking about the present day and the things that I want to achieve, which are the <laughs> following. <laughs> which is kind of like duh, duh, in terms of deflect, but it actually tends to uh, distract the individual and really actually focus on what's important during that interview of like, of like the things that you can bring to the table. Yeah, VC interviews as politics, deflect. Deflect. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we... We've we've covered that question really well. Yeah. Um, so I think it makes sense to go go on to another question that I really like to ask, which is um, about funds re- reserve policies. So I normally use this question as a as a chance to show off. Conscious that people might not know what a reserve policy is, could you give a quick one and what yeah. on what a reserve policy is? Yeah, happy happy to do that. So. The best way to explain a reserve policy is 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 kind of like this. Say you raise a hundred million fund, um, a fund wouldn't normally invest all of that in their their first tickets. So every venture fund needs to decide what portion of that they allocate to follow on investment. So back in companies that they've already backed before in subsequent rounds, and so different funds will reserve. So essentially allocate or earmark certain parts of their funds to specifically for, for follow on investments. So a pretty common reserve policy is 50-50, where they invest, again, the first 50 million of that 100 million, and then the rest is for, for kind of backing the, the winners. So yeah, so I, t- I typically ask this question because it it's really a great way to show off. Um most of the public facing side of VC lacks much discussion of reserves and and, and definitely the, the tactics and strategy behind that. So it makes you slightly different from the typical candidate who's spent, you know, all their time on TechCrunch to ask this question, which is maybe non-obvious. Right, got it. But I'm I'm curious to know 
what kind of answer are you looking for? Like I was referring back to the question of like, what does the fund look like in five years time? Like I'm asking this question, A, maybe to show off a little, but also to get an idea of like how I fit into the mold of the business and and whether there's essentially room for me to, to grow. So when you ask this question, is it purely just, this is a question that not many other people are going to ask and so this is going to be impressive? Or are you actually looking for a specific answer? Yeah, so I, I personally don't have very strong views on, you know, what the optimal reserve policy is. Um, however, the answer does provide you some colour as to how the fund views the world. So, for example, funds which reserve a lot, so let's say 60 70%, are very much maybe slightly lower conviction at the at the kind of get go but have have a view where they um they want a lot of scope to back things which are already going well so it's yeah. almost like those funds are using their first check as a way to almost buy an option um later whereas funds which maybe allocate a very small amount to reserves are really trying to build ownership from first check so it it does provide a read on the type of deal that you get to do and the type of way, um, the way that the fund thinks about deals. Mm. Yeah, no, that's that's a very good point. And again, it also reflects on what you'll be doing, potentially, exactly. whether you'll be supporting a lot of the portfolio on follow-on funding and being part of that round rather than handing it off to funds that are further down the um, investment road, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Right. I've got another question. Actually, I think it's not necessarily a question, but something to watch out for that I noticed was quite different depending on the fund is how they prioritize explaining sort of the ethos of the fund. Sometimes I found that partners often say, the main aim is to get return on investment to our LPs. And that's our focus is the return to the LPs. And then often there's wording with other partners, which is like, we're going to help founders achieve their dream and support them on this journey. And like, I'm kind of describing a spectrum of, of how they describe the fund and how they come across and what their focuses are. But I think it's very important when you're considering, you know, wanting to work for a fund is like, where do you want to be on that spectrum? Because to a certain extent, both are true. So I would say just watch out for the nuances of the partner's language and whether that's something that you... Uh, respond to you relate to and maybe be conscious that it helps if you mimic it um, in terms of how you respond to questions or in the Q&A when they ask you follow-on questions you know lean towards those things so either ask you know how do you provide the value add for helping the founder achieve their dreams or with LPs, how do you do reporting and how do you make sure that they're fully up to date on um, all the cap table changes or the fundraising rounds that are coming up? Yeah, I think it's very important. And I think you covered quite well the interview tactics as well pertaining to that question. Um, But I would like to 
focusing on, on, on one thing you said, which is about maybe align with your own personal goals. So I really like the idea of using this as a test to see how the partners frame the world. Because as you said, you, you do end up basically representing them or representing their, their worldview and the um, the lens of it on investing that you are going to adopt if you join the fund. Um, and you don't want to be caught in situations where, let's say, your moral compass or your proclivities are being sub subverted because of your fund. You don't really want there to be a conflict there because it doesn't feel good. Right. Yeah, hundred percent agree. Um, and I think that's that's probably the most important thing: cultural fit, right? And and I think that's something that you can pull out during these interviews, and especially at the the end. And hopefully, those final questions are something that almost sort of ticks all the boxes of cultural alignment in many ways. And also, again. And I keep saying this, but it's so important how you fit within that team. And I suppose a, another question to try and understand this is asking, how is the team structured? Um, and it really does vary from fund to fund because sometimes partners do deal sourcing as well. Sometimes they don't. Also, that level of responsibility principals have, associates have, analysts have, it all really varies. So getting a good understanding of where you fit within the organization and whether that works for you and what you want to be getting out of the job is important. So what's cool to is you telling me how much responsibility you have at Icebreaker, which you weren't expecting in a way. Was that because you didn't ask this question? <laughs> yeah, I think a, a combination. So I don't think I, I expected to have maybe slightly more responsibility than, than I had on, on my internships at, you know, uh, local Globe and Creandum. Um, a large part of that was because they were internships, but, you know, another part of that was maybe the the, the relative maturity of the fund. So I expected to, to be able to get a bit more just because there's a lot of, let's call it greenfield at, at Icebreaker versus maybe having slightly more established processes. But... I definitely wasn't expecting maybe the the level of of permissiveness here, and I think that may have come from from not asking, but also maybe not being able to believe because I guess a lot of um, funds are potentially inclined to tell you during interview stage that you're going to you know be a deal making machine because to an extent if you're a good candidate they want to convince you to join, but. Yeah, like I think I could have definitely asked the question more explicitly. And one maybe related question to asking about the, the, the structure of the fund is really actually asking how investment decisions are made um, in, in, I guess, the, the most material terms. Because uh, having spent time at three different funds, there is actually a startling amount of difference between um, let's call it the decision-making structures involved. Some 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 partnerships are more more equal than others. Some funds have voting. Uh, some funds have feeling, and all, all kinds of permutations in between. And I think that's actually 
really important when it comes to what your life is going to look like as especially if you're working on like deal sourcing yeah no it's it's a very good point and just to sort of explain that a, a little bit more in terms of the the decision making that's certainly in an element so most funds have something called an investment committee very rarely junior people have those voting rights but what's a little bit up in the air is whether you're supporting with all the different kinds of paperwork that you have to go through in the negotiation part. So really getting into the details of whether you are responsible for negotiating, drawing up the term sheet terms, or whether you're going to be playing a supporting role. And, you know, it seems like to me you're you're doing all that stuff right now, which is amazing. Yeah, so I get to, I get the privilege slash responsibility of of working a lot on transaction documents from a maybe more material um, sense. So it's it's less support and actual kind of execution. I think it's a double edged sword. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes you may not necessarily want to be want to be doing that, not because it's it's not interesting, but just because it's it's pretty high stakes stuff. Like right. type was pretty costly so <laughs> yeah don't forget uh, that extra zero right <laughs> exactly so i think i mean it's and and you you should always try and align to maybe what you like about the role so some people really like you know the idea of of putting together these these, these documents and being in like high stakes negotiations etc and, and some people don't so it is what it is in a sense Yes, exactly. It is what it is. And another way to sort of pull out what your priorities might be coming into the fund is is this question is sort of going in, what would be the biggest value add um, that I can bring or your new hire will be bringing to the table? And that will be giving you a good indication of what they're hoping for. The kind of answers to this question I, I tended to get was more deal flow, which is a very common thing that uh, junior level VC people bring. Um, interestingly, I did have an interview where it's like junior level people aren't expected to bring deal flow. Partners get all the deal flow, and you're going to be supporting us um, with the transaction part of the process. Which personally didn't suit me because I'm someone that loves the the hunt, so to speak, of the best new thing and interacting with people and pulling out new deal flow. So that that wasn't going to work for me personally. But um, it's very telling to see like how partners or people who are interviewing you answer that question um, and interestingly in particular when there's different answers depending on who you're asking because then you understand okay this person's looking from for this from you and this person's looking from this from you does that work and you know does that suit what you're looking for I suppose another thing that I, I quite like the answer to this question was like everyone had their superpower within the company. And then the person who was interviewing me named the superpowers of everyone on the team. And they're like, we think you have a superpower in this. Um, and I think you'd be a great addition to the team. And that was such a nice way of framing it. Um, so really cool. if there's any VCs who are interviewing, P.S., this is a very nice way of uh, <laughs> stroking the uh, very nervous <laughs> uh, interviewee's ego. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm now I'm now really kind of jealous that no one has has given me a superpower yet, or no one has told me. Um, and also, I can't get the image of you out of my head now in like a Berlin WeWork in camouflage, like looking <laughs> companies. Um, it's really, it's really quite Why dark. Leaving my business card on their table. <laughs> exactly, um, but. Yeah, no, I, I, I also, I mean, I also like this question, and I think maybe from a, a more like interview tactics perspective, I think again it, it shows like a, a willingness to to kind of help the company evolve as well, like a desire not to just you know fit in and just become like another cog in the machine, but in a, in a sense shows some level of ambition. So I think it, it also helps in that sense for interview positioning or like positioning yourself in their eyes. Um, yeah, maybe to change tack a bit, I think there are some questions which can help you figure out a fund's alignment slash, slash worldview a bit more. So I, I'm someone who really believes in the power of, of kind of it, uh, cold deal flow and none like untapped sources of, of deals so i've always liked to ask the question or ask questions around where where a fund's deal flow comes from and how they think about inbound versus outbound deal flow um and just to, to briefly clarify inbound deal flow is i guess people coming to you asking for money outbound is the reverse um yeah, me in camouflage leaving business cards on people's desks. Exactly. <laughs> that's outbound. Yeah. I think I think Francesca, that counts as like extreme outbound. <laughs> extreme. Um, yeah. We're talking yeah. about spectrums again. There, there's that one. <laughs> yeah, the market's really, really frothy right now, so you have to do what you can. But <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I like those types of questions because. Um, it tells you what what type of machine you're going to you're going to go into, and also, especially if you have a sourcing role, um, will dictate how you spend most of your time. So if you're not comfortable spamming poor founders on LinkedIn, then uh, this this question is pretty pretty damn illuminating. That side, yeah, no, it's it's very very true. If you if you're not someone that feels comfortable doing that then then this is not necessarily the role but again it, it very much depends on the fund um you know some funds are very fortunate in that they just get the best of the best reach out to them or through the, through their network so it's it's a very easy sort of introduction um otherwise actually a top tip for someone and um, not necessarily that this question would be asked but if it was of like how do you reach out to founders is you know often the traditional routes of LinkedIn or email but do try and make it personal as you said if if it's a hot startup and they're probably being bombarded by VCs so just the small things of noticing I don't know a a good example was uh, a startup that named their fund after their lab retriever and uh, they had mentioned this in their about page, right? Just that fact that you've read that and said, love the name, dog sounds great. You know, it, it just makes that bit of 
difference and stand out to the generic, hello, my name is Blah, I work at a hundred million fund and we found your profile interesting, can we have a conversation? Like they're likely to pick up the phone because right, you've got a hundred million. But it's those small little things that um, I feel like help build up a relationship even before you've started speaking to them. So I think that's that's an important thing to to maybe think about and and maybe, you know, be aware of when you start the job, when you get an amazing job in VC. Yeah, and I, I've definitely been guilty of like very kind of sleepily drafted outbound messaging on LinkedIn. So to, to all of the founders who have received by some of my generics, I apologize sincerely. <laughs> Sometimes you can't find common ground. Like <laughs> I see you like that you you're wearing red in your profile photo. I too love the color red, and I think you should take money from us. That's awesome. Uh, I love it. <laughs> I, I suppose a final one from me, which for me again, it's just like a very personal thing. I would say I'm on the cheesy scale of. The reason why I work in VCs is I just love working with founders, love the energy that they bring to the table and the passion and enthusiasm and also what they're building, you know, if it, if it goes the right way, is going to shape the future of how we live, work, etc. So one thing that I like to ask the funds is, can you give me some examples of how you've helped your portfolio? And for me, I got very excited when um, partners started reeling off the number of things that they'd done rather than the, oh, well, we're kind of hands off, silent partners. Um, like that, that's fine. And like some founders are looking for that. They don't want partners coming in and, and helping them out. They just want to get on with things. But I think for example, Project A has 100 people um, solely for the portfolio to hire out at their discretion from HR, like uh, IT, talent, already there for them. So actually on a weekly basis, I hear about the number of case studies and workshops that they're doing with the portfolio um, and the amount of value add they're bringing to the table. Um, so for me, that was just amazing, blew my mind because I, because they, they when when I asked this question, like a huge smile came on everyone's faces, and they're ready to list off like fifty examples from the last two weeks. So for me, like that was a very important question to ask. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I think I would agree. There are a lot of different uh, forms of expression of, of VC from the from maybe like the the platform model, which is. Kind of sounds like what what Project A are doing right. um, to to I guess the very kind of traditional like almost pure financier model, um, and there are a lot of funds which also exist on that spectrum. So figuring out where where you are in that spectrum is really interesting, and I think maybe what one area where Icebreaker is 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 slightly different from Project A, for example, is that we do have some uh, some like dedicated portfolio support staff especially in like um growth growth hacking and marketing but we definitely don't have a an army of of a hundred uh, and actually we would describe ourselves as as hands-on but that actually 
often involves individual team members. So from the from the partners to to myself, actually sitting and working with portfolio companies on 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 areas. So my time is is maybe 90, 10, 80, 20, um, mixed between maybe like deal sourcing and closing and material portfolio work. So I it would not be weird for me to open up like a company's um fundraising presentation and do that or help them set up pipe drive or or, or all of that. And I think that's maybe scalable for us because we're at the pre-seed so the work isn't so complex and specialized but it's always good to to kind of figure out where you sit on that spectrum um regardless and then what the what the material expression of that looks like right exactly so if for example um you're applying to icebreaker be conscious of that right or indeed ask that question of of how your time is split and if that that 20 percent is helping out the portfolio how are you going to be helping them out like you uh Tindy, you you said pipe drive um looking at how the next fundraising deck presumably with the financials just because that's that's part of your background um maybe a bit of law <laughs> my, my knowledge of Finnish, Swedish, and Estonian law is uh, is really insane. Yeah, <laughs> you're, you're more likely to get arrested or sued if you. <laughs> um, so, like, what what can you bring to the table for for my position? I'm definitely fortunate enough to be learning from specialists alongside the portfolio, um, and definitely willing to help out when I when I can and we definitely the investment team gets involved with future fundraising because that's their expertise yeah um maybe I guess you said that was your uh your your last favorite um maybe one of one of my last favorites because I I really like uh, trying to save interviews that have gone terribly um so one of my my, my favorites someone which I like to end with is what I call almost like an insurance question. So uh, the question is, is, um, is there anything that you would have liked to have seen or heard about from me that you didn't get a chance to hear about in this interview? Um, and the whole point of this question is that often in interviews, you know, they might really like you as a candidate, but they might have doubts about one area or you might have misunderstood a question and answered it in the wrong way. And most of the time, interviewers will not um, maybe go back and like fix your misunderstanding because they're on limited time. So this gives an opportunity to, to kind of salvage that at the last minute and kind of like allay any fears that might pop up at the end. So just to give some examples, I asked this in, in one interview um, and somehow it had escaped the interviewers that I spoke quite like a high level of German. So they, you know, the, the, the question was like, okay, well, one of the things that we're not sure about is that we, we actually probably really need a German speaker in the office. And I was like, oh, you, you didn't know. <laughs> and then I started <laughs> speaking to them in German. They're like, oh, well, damn. Um, and, you know, you know, that would have essentially been an own goal if I hadn't asked it because they would have just assumed that I didn't. Um, but like, I think it served me well across a, a number of interviews. So it's, I think f for, from a like pure, let's call it interview tactics perspective, it's not a bad question to have in your arsenal mm. just to kind of 
you know, get a chance to counter any negative points which are going to come up in the discussion the minute you drop the line. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Um, yeah, so I think that's all the questions that we had that we wanted to discuss today. Um, obviously, we're, we're aware that there's tons more questions that you could potentially ask. Um, and if you are, if you really want to share those with us, feel free to, to sh- shoot us a message, and perhaps we'll do another episode where we go through some of some of your suggestions. But um, I think my key parting thought is that you know you should really use the question phase as an opportunity, and there's really very little excuse not to, to shine in this phase. So be prepared. Nice. Well, thanks again for everyone listening in. And yes, as Tunde said, please reach out to us if you've got any questions. Feel free to drop us a line. We always like to hear from you. Thanks. Bye. Bye.